Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Brands Build a Brand series and podcast, content to enhance your brand and grow your business. Beyond Brands, for those of you who do not know, is a full-service agency that is focused on plant-based companies in the natural products industry. We have 20 partners and dozens of collective members with anywhere from 10 to over 30 years of experience each. Beyond Brands can help you from ideation to acceleration in everything from strategy to branding, sales, marketing, operations, finance, go-to-market strategy, and preparing for a capital raise. It was started by Eric Schnell and Marcy Zaroff, two heavy hitters in the natural products industry in 2016 in New York City. I'm Heather K. Terry. I'm a partner and the chief strategy officer at Beyond Brands, and I will be your host for these discussions. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Good Sam Foods. I have spent over a decade in the natural products industry with a focus mainly on food and beauty, and some of you may know me as the co-founder and creator of Nibmore Chocolate and the former VP of sales of the clean beauty brand SW Basics. As the current global crisis came to all our doorsteps several weeks ago, those of us that run Beyond Brands realized that there was a need to help provide information, guidance, and resources to our CPG community. Our Build a Brand series and podcast is a chance to hear from CPG veterans in the natural products industry in a candid, real-life, vulnerable way as they share their real-world experiences and stories. These interviews are a rare look behind the scenes, and we hope you enjoy them. Here we go. Today's topic is contraction, pivoting financially. You've probably already done it, cut costs and spending. But what we cut in business in the panic of world events or even events of our own doing seldom are the items that will make the long-term impactful changes that can ultimately keep you in business. I am honored to have two guests today with loads of real-world experience in dealing with these types of pivots. First, Vincent Biscay, Chief Financial Officer at Beyond Brands. Vincent is a former commodity derivatives trader with a strong passion for food and beverage. After having successfully worked for a decade in investment banking, he made a radical life change to dedicate his career to the natural foods industry in 2014 when he became partner and CFO of Love Grace, a New York-based organic cold-pressed juice smoothie company. He has since worked with over 30 early-stage startup companies focusing on finance and business development. Last year, he started Beyond Skew, a New York accelerator program with, with four of his partners at Beyond Brands, including myself. He holds an MSc in general engineering from a top 10 French college and received a master's in finance from HEC Business School in Paris. My second guest is Mirren Raffaelli, head of well-being at Beyond Brands. Mirren lends her 20 years of leadership experience to direct the well-being division of Beyond Brands. Prior to joining us, she was the U.S. Chief Executive Officer of Dr. Hauschka Skincare USA, a renowned global lifestyle brand that became self-financed and highly sought after under her leadership. Mirren works with a variety of brands to drive strategy and innovation. She operationalizes teams across function and industry with a focus on product design, packaging, supply chain and manufacturing, distribution and sales, marketing and public relations, 
legal and regulatory, and maybe most core, social mission and enterprise purpose. Please note, the views expressed are the opinions of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of Beyond Brands as an agency. The solutions and suggestions set forth on this webinar are not intended to be a one-size-fits-all for every business, and we do not have insight into your specific situation. So make sure you are consulting with your finance and legal teams. If you have questions throughout the course of this discussion, please put them in the Q&A at the bottom of your screen. You'll see a little thing down there, it says Q&A. That's where I want you to put your questions and we will get to as many of those at the end of this discussion as we can. Vincent and Marin, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Yeah. Excited. To be here. So um, we're going to jump right in because obviously this is a this is a really heavy topic for most people. The money side, you know, entrepreneurs are very passionate. They're very excited about their brands. Marketing's really sexy. Sales is super sexy. It's the, those are the fun things to talk about. The financial piece of it is the piece that like everyone dreads, right? So, you know, these are really financially scary times for small and emerging businesses. Lots of stores are closed. Stores are limiting the number of people coming in. Amazon is deciding what products get priority to be shipped out. The list goes on and on. What can brands do to mitigate the risk? Where do they start? How can they regroup? This is a very long question. Is there a process or a roadmap to get them back on track? Some companies, even before this crisis, were not in great shape going into it. So how do you approach that triage, that sort of emergency service um, into a business? Because that's what's going on here for a lot of brands. So Vincent, I want to hear from you first, um, and then Miriam will get your take on it. Yeah, it is a very um, large uh, topic that you just bring, in, bring up. And so I, I'll, I'll point with more of kind of a chronology perspective. So where do you start? Um, and I work, as you said earlier, with early stage startups. So what I'm saying might apply to larger companies, but for sure, I think it applies to, to um, early stage startups. Uh, I think you can divide the process, in my opinion, in three phases. You first, the, fa the first phase is maybe behind us, or a lot of brands have already acted upon that. But I don't think it starts with cuts, cut, cut right away. It starts by looking at your books. You have to look at the state of affairs. What, what's your cash on hand? What's your accounts receivable? What's your accounts payable and your burn? You need to look at that picture at the time of a crisis. So I'm sure most companies have done this around mid-March or early March. And then from there, you assess what are the immediate cuts that you can do. And, um, and without looking at your books prior, you cannot make those decisions uh, in the right way. Uh, then the second phase is to determine the horizon. Um, how long do I need to stay in business? Um, you need to make a guess. Uh, if this crisis is going to be six months or 12 or eight or nine, depending on your industry and what you're doing. Once you've established that, uh, that, um, that horizon, then you know what to do exactly. And you dynamically adjust, in my opinion, every month, literally. Um, if, if earlier, better. If you can do every week, you look at, okay, this is what I was expecting to spend. This is what I was expecting to, uh, to see as cash flow and working capital based on my cuts. Is it working out? And then you readjust. And then the third phase is... Well, once the market comes back to normal and the business stabilizes, it might already be stabilized for some companies. And then we can talk about it later as well. But for example, if you are an online company and you actually are killing it, you haven't really made any cuts. And so your market is already stable and it's the new norm is that you're doing great and you need to capture those, those customers. But phase three is basically um, 
when your market stabilizes, what can you do now? Can you fundraise in, with better terms? Um, was it um, like, how, how do you reinvest in your business and remove those cuts now that things are uh, come down? So I guess, you know, case by case, but hopefully those three phases help people um, strategize the, the approach here. Mirren, thoughts from you. Yeah, um, I think you know if you're a successful business right now, if you're an essential business right now, um, what I have to say is probably not your focus. Speaking to brands, as you had um, indicated, that might be in some trouble. I, I come from a crisis management standpoint that looks at mindset first, moving on to modeling, messaging, and managing. So starting with mindset, I think is really important where we have to stop saying, I think, when we get back to normal or moving back or bouncing back, because actually I think we're in the first phase of the next chapter. And so there's no real going back, there's going forward. You mentioned sort of entrepreneurial mindset. Um, you know, we tend to be, if we started businesses, if we're founders, if we're C-suite, we tend to be optimists. We tend to be people who look for some new development, some, some um, blue space. And um, that can sometimes count against us when we have to really look at what has been and what will be. As the sort of mist is lifting and we're saying we're in a new we're in a new world and it's transforming in real time. If we can shift from trying to get back to the budgets that we put in place or the campaigns that we put in place and actually start to say, well, what is this future that's emerging toward me and how do I identify what we've done in the past and pivot it to, to really meet the needs of the future, we begin to immediately orient both ourselves and our organizations. So that's the first part of mindset. I think the other part is, um, you know, some of the sort of practicalities around really making sure we have um, as much capital and as cash as possible. So, you know, in this kind of emergency time, um, really looking to see uh, what grants are available. Um, I'm a big fan of making sure that there's not a single um, potential access to fund that I haven't considered. So really looking at, you know, Inc. Magazine, for instance, right now has run a really great list of all the potential grants. Um, if you're a, a women entrepreneur right now, you can go to the um, women Business um, Enterprise National Council, they've done a great list, really looking to see, have I, um, uh, have I looked for every last piece of cash that I can get? I think it's also really important around mindset, um, not having too many sacred, um, sort of sacred cows, as it were, um, things that you think of as fixed costs actually might be um, available for renegotiation. You might say, look, my cost of good is set. I can't do anything about that. You can actually go and reconsider that, um, renegotiate that, look at, all of the, look at all of the payment terms that you have. Um, Nothing is sacred in this time. You can go back and reevaluate, renegotiate almost everything, including your interest rates. The next most fundamental part of sort of regrouping or thinking about this, and you know, we're looking at um, predictions right now that are showing us uh, there's like this initial phase, and then you know there might be a time where things start to relax and sort of there's more movement in the economy, and then come the autumn, we may see another contraction. So even if you miss the sort of first wave of 
appropriate response. Um, there'll probably be others coming. So getting in the practice of um, ongoing crisis management and thinking around mit uh, risk mitigation is really important. Modeling for me is fundamental. So uh, modeling might sound like kind of grandiose, particularly if you're a smaller organization. Um, but again, it's a really good practice and habit to get in um, you know, now and for the future. And when I think about modeling um, in this crisis and in, in any other crisis, and I can tell you in the 2008 contraction, it was a huge benefit um, and, and basically really helped us save our organization during a time of great sort of descent, um, is looking at the implications of a 20% reduction uh, in revenues, a 40% reduction in revenues, a 60 and 80. But by the time you're talking about an 80%, you know, reduction, people are like, well, I guess I'm thinking about closing up shop. Um, and, and I like to say, when you're doing appropriate modeling, impact modeling, you actually have to look at some of the worst case scenarios um, or the most severe. And that's actually really healthy practice to get into at the uh, onset, even if you're not predicting that for yourself, because you may be called on to make difficult decisions and you want to have at least a sense of what you might do in that case. So those kinds of modeling are really important. And then also across time frame. So some people say, well, it's 20% for how long? 40% for how long? I say look at a three month, look at a six month, and look at a nine month, um, because those implications are different. And as you begin to work on those models, and preferably, you know, with a trifecta of risk, man uh, risk managers on your team, so that would include, obviously, I say, like, your right ear, your left ear, and in front of you, your site, your finance person, your legal counsel, and your HR um, manager or director or team members, um, the really working with them together as a group, not in silos, um, looking at those particular models and saying, okay, guys, show me a scenario of what our organization looks like when we're at 40%, you know, we're 40% revenue re reduced for in a uh, nine month period, what sort of adjustments will we need to be making across the board? And get those models to you so they become your first roadmap in thinking about what you're gonna be doing next. I, I'm, I've, I've written a million questions, okay? So, cause that's what you guys do. These two, like when we're talking about finance and we're talking about, I love financial people. So first of all, I just wanna say, cause you just mentioned Mirren, HR and legal and your financial person. That is not a luxury for every single business. We understand, That's right. but I will tell you, like even from my own experience in running small companies, I would almost put my legal on the back burner. I mean, everybody has to have legal counsel, so I'd almost put my legal on the back burner. And H and HR maybe wasn't even a thing, but my finance person is like somebody I have held on to so tightly. Um, since the early days of my career, because they're so valuable. And sometimes, you know, I joke with Vincent sometimes, even at Beyond Brands, I'm like, oh, you're so unemotional. Like, why are you so steady? Like, you know, <laughs> guys do. The people who are in a financial position, mm -hmm. they're there to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they're there to do it with like a very neutral feeling about it. And that's what's so great. I think a lot, you know, I get a lot of startups who come to me and a lot of startups who even come to Beyond Brands with no financial model, no roadmap. Um, can you just talk really, really quickly? I don't want to make it about this, but why is it so important to have that model in both of your eyes? Do you want me to go first or Vincent first? Yeah, go ahead, Mirren. Um, well, for me, you know, when you're making financial decisions, particularly under duress, um, if you don't also have your HR team members, and by the way, for small businesses, I 
strongly suggest um, getting in touch with your employers association. Um, they have chapters all across every state um, and they give a really great and oftentimes, um, although you're you know, paying a monthly amount, it's far less than having a full-time HR person. So if you can't have that role, um, absolutely um, consult with that organization. And I think right now in the crisis, they're doing a lot of stuff pro bono. Um, but the reason that you really want to be talking also to your legal counsel alongside and, and particularly around modeling um, and your HR team members is that you want to start getting your messages really right. And you also want to make sure that as you make dramatic decisions, particularly as a fiduciary, you're not stepping in a place that will later be consequential in a negative way. Um, and also there's a way in which people who have natural skills and sort of risk management think alike does include your finance team. Your finance team will understand things that your legal team will understand and your HR person will reflect the impact and also help to craft the message as you're thinking about these different applications. Um, this is an opportunity where people really need to be united under your leadership to come up with models that make sense for the whole system. And um, I just want to say on legal side, law moves much slower than economies and their consequences if you make a misstep while you're making dramatic changes which many businesses right now are forced to do vincent modeling tell us why it's so important yeah especially these, these days um and again i'm going to use my the lens of uh, of the early stage startups because it's really where i i um, evolve uh, the most and uh, for those companies that, that have a model, that's already a benefit. They've already uh, acknowledged that it's important. Uh, and by model, we're talking a budget or just, just numbers that predict uh, or try to predict and forecast where they're going, even if it's just one year. Once you have that, the day that COVID hit and the confinement started, everything you had in there, you could throw it off the window. Um, for the good and the bad, meaning maybe your business is doing better, so your projections, you're, over, you're, um, you're uh, overperforming. But in most cases, unfortunately, it's the opposite. And so whatever you promised, you're going to have to, to readjust. And so just from a pure um, investor relations, for example, uh, you, need to, you need to make sure that they're updated and that they understand that 2020 is not going to look like uh, it looked in February. And so I've done a lot of work with companies the past uh, 45 days to just re-update completely their projections and make them realistic. So that's, that's one reason why it's very important. If you never had a model and never used that, well, now is the time to, to put that in place because you might not exist in a few weeks or months because you are um, trying to figure out where to allocate the capital you had. Maybe you had a previous raise, maybe it's your own funds, maybe it's friends and family. It still applies. You need to have that extra discipline more now than ever because you might run out of money. And, um, and so, I mean, I mean, for me, it's, 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 a, it's a necessary evil for people that don't like it. Um, and, and during COVID, it has certainly... Um, been transformed and uh, again sometimes for the better uh, you know we, we have to talk about the, the the dirty and the ugly here but there are companies that are doing well and they also have to adjust uh, yeah so I think that's that's kind of sums up the reason why I think um, a model and a budget is essential got it so I so okay again if you don't have a financial model and you are running a business you cannot work without that safety net. I just want to say it because um, I hated numbers when I came into entrepreneurship. And I, it's funny, my long-term CFO partner, who's, who's been with me for a couple businesses, we were on the phone yesterday and we were going through something and she's like, can you believe in 13 years? She's like, you're just, you just, it's like over time it happens. So for those of you that are out there, especially the smaller emerging brands, you know, 
you're going to get it over time. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be intimidated, but get somebody on your team who really understands the implications, not even just in a crisis like this, but overall, you need to have somebody who really understands numbers and can help you through your finances. You'll never create a thriving business without it. Yeah. Can we, are we all in agreement on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're in a business and so you really want to be able to make sure that your organization is safe um, and thriving. Um, I think what happens is um, people think about planning as an entrepreneur as a kind of um, intuitive practice. Um, and so there's might, there might be a small resistance to saying, um, what's the point of having a roadmap? And things are changing so radically, so quickly all the time now anyway. I mean, you like, today is a new, they'll release all kinds of new policies and tomorrow, you know, we have this situation and um, there might be a, a kind of a resignation or a dismissal of having a plan. Plan, but it's a little bit like you're driving in an unknown territory and while you don't know the um, you know the the way to go in order to stay safe it's good to have something that you are working with it'll give you peace of mind that you can refer to because you will be pivoting having a, a plan or a model is not a codified set of edicts right you're an entrepreneur you have a natural inclination to think on your feet anyway but if you don't have something particularly during uh, duress and crisis that you are referring to, it can get chaotic quickly. Say nothing of the fact that you have responsibilities to investors, uh, to your stakeholders, to your customers. Messaging is really important and you won't be able to effectively message and update in real time, which should be a much more consistent thing that you're doing during a time of crisis if you don't have a plan that you're constantly referring to. So if you say, okay, our goal for the next 60 days, or our goal for the next 10 days, our goal for the next six months is to do this, and you um, open up transparency to all of your stakeholders by sharing with them where you are according to that plan. So that when it changes, you said, I know we said a week ago this, but today we're actually doing this and here's why. And it allows people to feel as a leader that you are thinking in methodical linear ways and you are working in real time to adjust with the new information and that includes the financial consequences of the choices that you're making so that it doesn't just turn into a cluster you-know-what. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Mood 33 Hemp-Infused Herbal Teas. Six soulfully delicious herbal teas, each one infused with 33 milligrams of the finest sustainably U.S.-grown full-spectrum hemp extract, premium botanicals, and real fruit juices. Joy, an uplifting blend of full-spectrum hemp extract, yerba mate, and refreshing peach. Energy, a triple-powered blend of full-spectrum hemp extract, zesty lemon juice, and natural caffeine from guayusa leaves, green tea, and coffee beans. Peace, a blend of full-spectrum hemp extract, refreshing watermelon, mint, and basil. Well-being, a body-boosting blend of full-spectrum hemp extract and flavorful blueberries, immune-supporting reishi, and calming hops. Passion, a blend of full-spectrum hemp extract and a wildly inspiring infusion of passion fruit, hibiscus, and lime. 
Calm, a serene blend of full-spectrum hemp extract and a soothing, subtly flavored infusion of lavender and chamomile. Non-intoxicating, non-GMO, and mindfully sweetened, it's the better way to enjoy hemp in the mood that's right for you right now. Shop now at mood33.com. Elevate your state. Back to the episode. So, okay. I let, and I want, just want to take it back a second to mindset because money can get really emotional, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, there are people like Vincent and, you know, Sona Banker and uh, David Chang, who's on our team, who there's a reason they're the money people, right? They're very steady. They're very unemotional about it, but entrepreneurs, founders can be very, it can get, become a very emotional topic. So, I just want to hear from you guys, like how as a, how as a leader, can you make it not so emotional? What have you guys done with brands that you've worked with to help them take that piece out of it? Or is that piece necessary for it? Vincent, would you like to go first or? Yeah, no, I think, I think um, it's a, it's a really difficult question because obviously everybody's different, but there, even, even for people that are doing this for a living, there is a, a little bit of emotion, but for founders, I mean, there's no way out of that. And so in my opinion, and for the clients that I know and the friends I have in the industry that are running businesses, um, even though they understand and they're very savvy and they've learned through the years how to maneuver the financial part of things, that you always have personal and emotional connections that come up. In particular right now, the number one that immediately happened overnight was, um, do I need to fire people? And I think uh, that's an immediate uh, question that everybody asks itself. Uh, and so maybe I can just talk about that example for a second to, 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 um, to justify um, my, my answer. But uh, depending on the size of your company, it can be very emotional. I mean, it's, I, mean it's, I think it's always emotional if you have even a, a lot of employees. But what I've seen in the community and in the food and beverage industry in particular is that most companies have done everything they can to keep everybody on payroll. That was kind of, I felt like from the people I talked to, that was the number one um, uh, motivation. Then for some of them, it wasn't possible. So the next step was to uh, have a conversation with everyone and impose a haircut, uh, cutting pay for the next couple months until things get better. And I've seen, uh, haircuts from 25% to sometimes 50% uh, throughout the entire company. And then the third situation which happens is that that's not going to be enough. You have maybe a big sales team or you just started hiring a lot of people because you had a, a capital raise not too long ago. And now you have to make much bigger decisions, which is to let go people in an environment where it's hard to find a job. And to those entrepreneurs, I certainly suggest them to do it because if you can't do it, when you are in the worst situation possible, and now we're facing a crisis like we've never faced before, then as you grow your business, when are you going to be able to let go of people, um, in particular, the ones that don't perform? So obviously, if you had some, some, um, some doubts on some of your, of your team members, now is the time, unfortunately, to, to let them go. But this should be really the, the last resort. Hopefully, the government aids is something that you've, everybody has been applying to, I, I would imagine, and, and I've seen in the media they're here to make this, uh, these actions a little bit more um, uh, viable. And so wh- while keeping people and giving them a, a pay cut, if you have applied for a PPP, for example, uh, pay protection plan, you might have received some funds or about to receive some f- funds so that you can actually now pay them back and keep them around. So 
uh, the government has done some things right in order to support the small businesses. Uh, but uh, I hope that example is a good way to, to answer your No, I think it is because I think that, I think that um, letting go of human capital, right? He, people who you've maybe become close with, especially for the smaller companies, that can be very, very trying. But if you look at the survival of your business and keeping people on payroll, I do think that has to be a consideration. And, and sadly, sometimes it can be, it can be a really a, a difficult one uh, emotionally. Miran, uh, what, what do you want to say here about this particular part of the topic? Well, I mean, I think in terms of making adjustments and contractions, when you actually have to start making cuts, um, there's an article that I'm remembering from Harvard Business Review 10 years ago that is actually written about um, written for managers and not written for C-suite um, on like what happens when you're asked to cut 10, 20 and 30 percent and how to go about doing that. Um, and I think, you know, you always want to begin with the incremental and move out cross-departmentally. I think you want to be making sure when you're looking at adjustments for medium-sized companies, we're not talking about small sort of 10 people or less, but if you're looking at, you know, let's say 30 to 50 um, and above, um, you, you really want to be making sure that um, the people closest to the work have the idea or have the concepts around efficiencies that they can bring forward. Um, and making sure that there's sort of cross-departmental cross competencies are being properly tracked. Um, there's different mindsets, again, for 10, 20, and 30 and below. By the time you're crossing the threshold of 30% cuts, you are absolutely looking at consolidation of roles. And that becomes a, a sort of a substantial question on like whether you furlough or you actually start to do layoffs. Um, and there, you know, there are pros and cons on either side. And one of the things I think is super important, of course, is that you try to retain as many people as possible. But one of the things I caution about, and I remember this again from 2008 contraction, um, you know, if you've seen like 40, 50% losses, how do you start to consolidate roles for that? Um, I, I'm a belief in making painful decisions once and quickly and as deep as possible so that the reverberations don't stay in the organization after you have to keep going because you have to keep going. If your colleagues and your coworkers around you are like, am I next, am I next, what's coming, what's coming, that's a huge energy drill for them. Um, and they may not have the kind of creativity and positivity and gumption and moxie that you need during this time that you, you know, this turbulence. And so as painful as it is as a leader to say, I'm gonna have to consolidate quicker, I think that um, you may actually do, depending on what your model is showing you, like you may actually find that that, you know, there's pain at the beginning, but then you're moving quickly after that. And then you can expand and potentially rehire as opposed to these sort of like small, like, okay, we're going to furlough for a while and we're going to take haircuts. I'm going to keep asking people to adjust their salaries. That might work for your mission. That might work for your culture. You know, you have to pay attention to what the culture of your own organization is. But I am a person who doesn't want to live with dread and a lot of people don't want to live with dread. And so if you say, guys, this is a rough moment here are the tough choices we're making in leadership, and then we're moving forward with some confidence, and I'm gonna keep updating you. I think this is a big part, going back to your initial question, um, that's so important around messaging, which is 
who are you updating, how frequently, um, and how consistent is that communication? And, and then again, who's also informing how you're looking at the various aspects of your business? So it's not just about what you're saying, but who you're listening to that becomes a vital part of adapting your culture to the reality of their new normal. Um, I think, you know, you really want to be uploading and um, highlighting, rewarding, recognizing um, uh, the team members in the organization who are bringing new ideas forward and are if you know maybe cheerleading for the system or creating new opportunities or coming up with great ways to save that you might not so kind of collective uniting and inviting everybody into um, the focus of where your organization might be unfolding into i think is super important well this is i think everything you just said was really important Mirren. um you know when you see the glaring when you see those numbers are glaring at you off the page and the emotional part gets involved and you think, oh, okay, I'll just do a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, that can actually be a lot more painful long-term mm -hmm. and uh, then just ripping off that band-aid and saying, okay, we know we're not going to make it um, with this many people on payroll for the next six months. So let's just, let's just rip the bandaid off. And, you know, again, we're not trying to be prescriptive in this conversation. That may not be the right decision for everybody to Mirren's point. It may be a, it may be a slow burn to you. exactly what Vincent said, like, okay, maybe we'll take 25% down. Oh, this is going on longer than we thought. We're going to have to go a little deeper. Maybe your organization lends itself to that, but I think there's validity in both points, right? Of taking a look at your company culture and saying, what is the way that we want to deal with this in order to keep up company morale, right? Continue to keep moving forward um, and, and not to have such an, a strain on the leadership of the company because that's another big, big part of it. Um, and that's, again, it goes back to having that right financial person in your corner to make those suggestions based on every line item that they're looking at. And so I want to go into those line items, right? Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, so many companies at the beginning of this crisis at the, at the onset of this crisis, and I'm, I'm sort of a person who, when I lead organizations that, um, I take a little bit of a minute back and I like to kind of step back a second and let the noise settle before I make any decisions. But I know a lot of people have been making decisions very quickly, very rapidly, and maybe some of those decisions aren't materializing the way that they thought that they would. Um, so so there have been some, some cuts that, that businesses have made. And, and of course, one of the ones we talk about a lot at Beyond Brands is like when the marketing gets cut, right? Because it always sends, seems to be the ugly, it's like, it's the, the, the first um, stepsister to go, right? It's like, oh, she's, she's expensive and we don't really know what she does. So we're just going to cut her. But then there is a backlash to that, right? In some instances, depending on your strategy. So you know, now that could be coming back to kind of bite people a little bit, some businesses, right? They're like, oh, but I'm still out there floating on Amazon. I'm still out there floating on, um, you know, my own website or I'm in Whole Foods and I cut marketing. So like, what do I do? You know, how can you balance something like marketing on your P&L with other more controversial cuts overall? Vincent, yep. you're up. Yep. No, of course, I, I like to go into the, the nitty gritty. As I said earlier, I think it's, it's good. I mean, there, are, there has been some cuts that were uh, kind of automatically imposed by COVID-19, such as um, demos in stores or uh, travels, meals. Th these were immediately uh, going to zero. So back to, to what we said earlier, 
a financial model helps you understand, okay, I just got some allocation of capital I can put somewhere else, or at least I don't have to spend or burn. So these were easy. These were automatic. Payroll, we just talked about it. It's a big chunk of probably almost every company out there. And therefore, uh, we've already talked at length on how to kind of maneuver this with haircuts or, or uh, letting go of some people. And marketing is then the, the third and last uh, piece to, to tackle. And obviously, some companies have digital, a lot of digital marketing. Others have some different spend. Uh, what I've suggested people I've worked with is that, at least in the short term, any marketing expense that it's outside of everything else we've talked about has to be linked to a sale or immediate revenue. Um, that's what I give as a guideline. And, and it's, a bit, it's a bit stringent, but you know, the conditions are, and I always look at the window, I don't know why, but the, out there, it's crazy. So, uh, so um, it is least, literally outside your window, crazy. It's you right are in there. New York City. So, yeah, no, it is. And so, uh, at least for a month or two, you can make some drastic cuts. For instance, you were putting your brand out there, you were doing brand awareness with a lot of campaigns that are about your, your, your company. Well, if they're not necessarily linked to a swipe up or to a coupon in store well, in, uh, or to a, a digital ad that drives traffic to your, your store, you have to, to slow these downs or cut them. If you had a lot of PR going up, if the PR is going to link to your website, that's great. But if you don't have an online business, you have to cut your PR and the press that's about to go because for the time being, it, you're not going to get the return on investment on these. So that's how I approach it from a financial standpoint. If you want to continue some marketing, make sure it's linked to a sale, at least for the next couple months. And then little by little, as I said earlier, phase three, when you think things are getting stabilized and then you know you're a runway and things are a little better, then you integrate those expenses back and you continue to grow your business as you were before COVID. Mm. Mirren, you're up. I think... Um... I agree. I agree with some of what Vincent is saying. And again, you know, there's a different approach depending on the size of your organization and of course the kind of uh, product that you're putting into the market or if you're service related, et cetera. So um, we, we don't have a sort of one, like one piece of advice to give all organizations, but I do think that there's um, inherent wisdom in following this idea that um, Vincent mentioned around making sure that you can prove revenues on the short term with any strategy, right? And that is, um, that's, a, that's really a position to take, not just as it applies to marketing budgets, but frankly around everything. Like, does this drive revenue now? And, um, and, and if not, like tomorrow, you know, in two weeks. So really thinking on the short term. Um, but I, I tend to be a person who, and, and I grew up through marketing and sales, that um, tend, wants people to take an, a breather before they start slashing and burning their marketing budgets. Um, and rather take the approach of if, how, and when, um, as opposed to, we don't need that. You know, that's a campaign we don't need. And say, well, okay, is this actually still salient as it applies to the entire mission of our organization. So is it like, a, is, if it's novel, of course, you know, this is not the time, it's something you're gonna try for the first time. But if it's um, pertinent to what, what it is we stand for and our purpose for existence, then how are we doing it and how might we do it differently? And then when might we do it? Um, and think about really um, constructive and unusual ways to go about maybe accomplishing the same thing, but in a different way. The other thing to say, we're um, again, going back to sort of mindset, as you sort of look at your line items are, um, 
you know, you want to assess quickly, you want to deliberate slowly, and then you want to act quickly again. Um, so you don't want to just suddenly go, this is a, this is a problem. We're not doing that. Rather take the time as you deliberate to say, is there another way to have um, portions of this campaign integrate? If we're pivoting into digital, um, we're not going to be do store demos anymore. What's the messaging that we can um, still extract out of, you know, the um, store shelf promotions that we were going to do that can move in this direction? Or if we're struggling right now to even get digital space, you know, is, are there ways that we can use the promotion we had in mind for something at the local level that we might um, involve um, other like-minded businesses who are going through similar things to join up in? Like this campaign can actually extend out to other parts of our collaborative community. Um, so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then I think also making incremental changes are really important. So, you know, say like people will slash an entire marketing campaign that actually could give them lift if they just waited a little bit longer or did it differently instead of saying okay rather than take something big out what happens if we take 10% at the top of all of these line items right so that we can actually move forward with this campaign and free up the capital um, and rethink the you know the launch of it differently yeah I love the idea of sort of taking all the buckets and giving all the buckets a little bit of a haircut instead of exactly that throwing the baby out with the bathwater because sometimes that can actually be very uh, effective in, in this. Um, all right, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here, you guys, because um, most businesses and even startups or emerging brands, right, brands that have been around for a couple of years have to deal with their shareholders, right? And financials are a really big deal. And I love hearing other industry leaders um, talk about how your financial model is always changing because I think it's a misconception. I think people think they put their financial model together and they're like, okay, ta-da, and then they leave it alone and it never gets seen again, especially for younger brands. With your shareholders, okay, so I love this idea of communicating to shareholders that, hey, it might've been that way last week. We've reevaluated some information. So now it's like this this week. Vincent, you brought this up um, in a very recent conversation. We did talk about this on another webinar, um, the sales webinar, but I want to hear a little bit more about this. Amazon is limiting the items that they're, they're putting out in terms of priority. Stores are limiting the number of people. So that run on the stores at the beginning is, doesn't exist anymore, right? And I think a lot of shareholders may still be under the impression that like grocery and um, anything you can get in a grocery store, even if it's like a beauty product, Mirren, um, is doing, it's alive and well. Supplements, um, uh, beauty products, beverage, food, they're doing great, except that the market's kind of contracted in some ways too. There's like a finite number of, of things that are happening here. You know, places like Amazon and Thrive Market, they're having, you know, there's trouble in um, the warehouses. They can't get product out fast enough. So there's been a little bit of contraction in the marketplace. So talk to, can, if you guys can talk a little bit about how to communicate that with your shareholders. Because I think a lot, some shareholders, what I've been hearing from brands is like, they're expecting these huge lifts but that might not necessarily be the case. So Miran, if you wanna take that one first. Sure, um, no, it certainly might not. And I think on Tuesday, Amazon just released that they are dramatically, in some cases, like by 80% reducing affiliate uh, payouts. So they don't feel like they need the advertising anymore. That's gonna have enormous consequences, online digital. Mm. So really we are in this tumultuous period where almost every day something else is changing. You know, <laughs> last week might as well be last year. And so this is again, um, a case making 
looking for messaging to your shareholders, but I like to say to your stakeholders, um, really clarifying in real time what's happening um, and making sure that you're up to date so that you can reflect what that's going to mean and frankly, right size expectations. It's also another great case to be, uh, you know, to make again for a model, um, because if you've got some crisis models that you're working off of, you can update that model based on real things that you're hearing and send it back out, be it to your investors, be it to your shareholders, you know, be it to your customers, and of course your internal team members, your like your first constituency. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes even in an organization, people are operating off of different assumptions. And so messaging and keeping communication tight in your own group is really important because things are changing so rapidly. I think that um, it's, it's vital um, when you're talking about messaging uh, to keep things authentic um, and to tell the truth. Um, and like we started out by saying like, you know, this is not the time to sort of sugarcoat stuff or to lead with um, optimism, even if that feels natural to you. It's not to say that you want to, um, uh, you know, sort of have a doom is, you know, gloom and doom perspective. You don't need to go there, but you do have to be realistic and you have to. And I think it will give um, all your shareholders, all your stakeholders great confidence if you show them that you've thought about worst case scenarios and really like, um, you know, sort of tough, tough expectations um, that are moving forward. I, I think um, tracking where your particular brand service or product is in the in its kind of competitive set i think is really important and to also demonstrate that as part of your evaluation that you're sending back like you you can provide the context to your shareholders so guys for our industry this is what's happening and here is what we're noticing our top collaborators and our competitors doing and this is what we're doing that's like them and different from them um, so that the people who have a stake in the outcome of your organization have a clear sense that you're not just myopically focused on your own product but you're actually opening up you know your aperture to see what other people are doing that are all that is also creative and innovative um you know if everybody's charging for it on digital um but there are the slowdowns in digital as you rightfully say you know amazon is making these selections and we have big supply chain issues and we have logistics issues and government requirements, et cetera, you know, there might be some really interesting ground together in looking at local economies, right? Everybody thinks like scale, get it out there to as many people as far. But I can, you can make up a lot of your revenue losses by actually thinking quite locally about the application of your brand and product. And to suddenly look to the village, right? Not just look to the whole state, you might actually find yourself your safe ground there. So I, I suggest um, just really um, taking your model and making that a central part of how you communicate to your shareholders um, and really keeping an eye to all possibilities. Awesome. Vincent, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's two things. One that Miriam really talked at length about communicate, communicate, communicate. And the other one is data, data, data. So um, Communication with your shareholders mean, and, and it's really hard, by the way, even when things are going well, most of startups don't communicate. They're not proactive, not because they don't care, because it's just not um, their, their, their first, um, the first thing they think about. They're thinking about their business performing. And then when things go well, they go to the investors. Here's my update quarterly. You know, it's very rare to see an, um, a monthly investor update. And, when, and it's even rarer to get 
the founders to want to give them a phone call every week or every two weeks to share news. Not because, again, not because they don't want to, just because they don't think about it. Now more than ever, you are going to be so much rewarded if you call or send an email to your investors saying, uh, this week sales are down 40%. Just wanted to let you know. Just didn't get, we just didn't get our orders from our distributors. We're monitoring the situation. Um, and then the week after that, oh, sales are down only 20%. So it seems like something is picking back up. That week to week, it's so much better than wait one month so that you have a clear picture and then say, our overall sales are down 40%. They haven't heard from you for 30 days and now you give them a bad news. So, so that's communication for me practically and, and that's what it benefits you. But the data is the most important. So you're not alone having issues and you're not alone having uh, grocery stores that are either shut down or have limited traffic. And luckily or hopefully for you, your shareholders know this, they read the media and they have other portfolio brands, in which case they'll completely understand. If that's the case, and I'll give the second uh, uh, example in a minute, if that's the case, if they know their market and if they know what's going on, then they're going to compare you to benchmark. So there was an article uh, last week about Whole Foods traffic for the month of March, who was down 40%. Well, there was different, different percentages based on, on different things. If you are in Whole Foods in that region and your sales are down 20%, something's good's happening. And so that's how you turn it to your advantage. If you're down 60%, means that either you were not restocked, your distribution uh, network didn't work out, or your product was not an essential, so it's not selling. And so these are conversations you need to have either way, whether it's good or bad, right away with your investors as, as you get them. Now, if your shareholders don't know much about the market, and it happens, you have friends, family, or people in other industries, as you said, Heather, they're expecting a massive boost in March and April, and, and the world is amazing, and your margin and profitable, even more so a good reason to talk to them and show them data. So show them your data, of course, uh, explain and give, give your best explanation on why things are happening to you. And then if you can, and if you have access to show a data from other things, either you can pay for data and spins and then show that you're not the only one in the last 12 weeks to show numbers going down. Uh, a lot of retailers have portals that allow you to see other brands, surprisingly. Wegmans is one of them. You can see all the brands in Wegmans when you're a brand, and so you can see how they do. Uh, and then in the media, you, you'll see uh, uh, in the New York Times or other jour journalists uh, writing about the contraction of each uh, industry, and you can try to use this as a benchmark. So I think that's the best way to talk to your shareholders is, is um, frequent, more frequently and with data, if you can. Wonderful. That's great. Really great advice. Um, okay, so in both of your opinions, who's going to make it out of this and who isn't? And why? Why is it okay if you have to close? Controversial. Who's going first? I can go first. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Vincent. It's... Um, it's hard, but uh, it's, it's a very good question. Um, <laughs> so okay. who makes it out? Yeah. Who isn't? And why is it okay to close? Okay. So maybe I'm going to state the obvious in some cases, but the companies that are going to make it out of this are companies that have a very good online business, very robust. Um, they're going to come out as winners. If they had a, an online business before, even better. And if they were able, able to pivot or were on the way to, to build this up and they do it successfully, they're going to be winners long term. Um, companies that are small or large that have good margins are in better position. As you guys know, there are a lot of companies that go in the market with pretty low margins in the hope that with the funding and the time and the scale, the margins will come to where they should be. These, unfortunately, are not, are not going to have a lot of runway 
to be able to do that. And so it's a lot more difficult to do that contraction. Um, so if you have good margins, you're in a good spot. Uh, companies that received funding in Q1, they're in a great spot <laughs> because they, they have runway. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately you, timing, is a, uh, timing and chance is a big part of our, of our business. Um, so, um, so that's an, another element. And then uh, the last one is what we talked about. I think companies that acted fast and made cuts early without sacrificing too much of their business so again, what you do today has an impact. There's no, you know, there's no fatality. Uh, you have a better chance if you do um, um, uh, that, that. You know, you focus on revenue streams that are working, and you try to cut where where the expenses that you can. So this is my answer for the ones that are going to make it. Mm-hmm. The ones that are not going to make it um, is, I mean, it's similar. It's a kind of a mirror of the ones that are going to make it. But you know, if you're a highly leveraged startup, it's going to be hard. Uh, you're going to really have to knock on the door of the existing investors and tell them the story why they should put more now and the terms are not going to be good but you're going to be able to stay alive potentially and if nobody wants to give you money and you were highly leveraged then potentially you have to actually close the door very shortly and we can talk about that later um, if you're low margin you're in you know, a bad spot if you're exclusively food service so opposite of being exclusively online then it's very difficult if you're selling to restaurants and stadiums mm-hmm. and it was 80 percent of your business Again, there's the, the only way to survive is to uh, get investors to, to believe that the world is going to come back to normal and that you're going to be able to, to do that, uh, to, to get that revenue back. Uh, show them that you can pivot. Show them that you were able to either open an online channel or start selling into a different, different avenues. Um, but unfortunately, bad timing is also going to be a main factor. If you bought a house in 2008, uh, just before the crisis, then of course you, you're part of the of the ones that were not lucky, same here. If, you, if, you, if you're about to raise money in Q2 and you haven't started in Q1, it's really hard to, to raise capital now, or at least you're gonna have people taking a little bit advantage of you. So ideally that, that six months window that Miran and I were talking about where you wait and see if you, can, if you can survive that and make the arrangements for it, then probably in Q4 and Q1 next year, you can tell a totally different story and raise with uh, normal market conditions. Miran, I loved your faces through all of you. It was just like the thoughtful face. Um, what am I going to say here? Because it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a hot button question. Yeah. I have yeah, so many opinions and we could just have, you know, two hours on this subject alone. Yeah. I agree with everything that Vincent is saying and, you know, down in the granular details, um, obviously, you know, if you were capitalized in December, <laughs> that was a stroke of genius. Um, and all of the points he's making around margin valid. Um, I want to say sort of at large organizations that unify at this time, um, will stand a better chance that know how to work with each other and kind of restructure their mindset, I think stand a better chance. I also think um, organizations that are flexible and have training around being flexible and understanding how to bring their mission into the world without holding as firmly to their product assortment might do really well. Here's here's just a, a case that I I'm just amazed by. I saw um, in our local county in Sonoma County, a very large um, catering company, right? That's a service industry and large group industry, um, completely jump 
um, uh, in terms of their offerings to servicing hospitals and servicing essential workers um, in sort of um, finished lunch products as opposed to sort of large swanky events um, and to do so very successfully have managed of their like 120 employees not to lay off anybody just rethinking how they could continue their mission but in a totally different way um, another great example um, of pivots that can happen um, I saw Kind Lips, um, this really lovely brand out of Minneapolis that makes um, lip balms um, and gives 20% of their profits, come back to their mission and say our first, 20% of their profits to um, anti-bullying campaigns, come back to their original um, mission of being kind and say, we can now make PPE instead of lip balms for a period of time and keep their staff intact. So I think it is possible to have dramatic changes and shifts as long as it's concurrent with your mission and purpose. Um, and you've got a unified, flexible team who want to move with you. I've seen organizations um, that take a 20% um, cut in revenues fall apart. I've seen organizations take a 70% cut and make it through. So yes, there are predictions and patterns that generally follow through, but there are lots of examples of organizations completely redefining themselves during this time period and making it through. And so um, I want to encourage everybody to say, like, it's really about coming back to the basics um, and you know, conserving your, your resources, making um, some consolidations that you might have to, making some difficult decisions you have to, and then moving very quickly to adjust to the time and, and recognizing you're in a, in a new phase. Um, I like to focus on who's triumphant as opposed to who makes it, who doesn't, who succeeds or who fails. Who's triumphant at the other side of this? And it's, I think it's organizations and people who, regardless of the position that they've been put in, recognize that something new is emerging and they're adjusting to it. You know, I grew up on a farm. Um, we like to say, you know, in a fire, in a big fire, if you can't save the farm, save the seeds and grab a shovel. Like we are moving into a new phase where mm -hmm. everything is getting born again, really. And um, you want to recognize that um, you, you know, even if you have to adjust your organization, even if you have to close your organization, you can move into the future with um, a vision that is that can be born, you know, anew. And so um, thinking about what is was triumphant, thinking about um, how to be whole and how to stay in integrity um, and how to keep the relationships that you have managed well still um, verdant, you know, still green for yourself, even if this particular chapter closing is going to happen for you or you're going to adjust, um, there's going to come a, a, a new day. I was reading um, Neil Gottlieb's um, letter in closing um, Three Twins. I think everybody who you know is a big ice cream fan um, and certainly watches mm -hmm. that uh, organization um, adjust to one of the sort of major players in the system announced their closing. And I, I invite everybody to read his letter, which is posted on their site, um, because I think it's really a great example of good messaging during a difficult moment. Um, you want to be able to recognize um, leadership even at the moment of contraction, even at the moment of calling the curtain, you know? You want to be able to say, I, um, I recognize and um, celebrate all of the great things we've done, and here's how I'm caretaking into the future even if I'm closing at this point.
Yeah, I, I Good agree with that. Some final thoughts on closing. No, I mean, yeah. yeah, for me, this resonates because, um, you know, there are people that are successful and, and make great exit, make a lot of money, and they're a bit arrogant about it, or you're, they're not just, uh, they're not talking about it really well. And I think there is class when you succeed, but there's also class when you fail. So if you bankrupt your company, there is a way to do it in a classy way. The com again, the communication with your investors prior to making the decision, they need to be involved in the decision your staff member, your employees, your friends, they need to be involved in the decision. And maybe by communicating, you'll be surprised. Maybe there's actually a solution. Maybe there's a couple of investors that, that actually believe in, in what you're doing and they like your approach and they put some money together and then you get a second, uh, second wind. Mm -hmm. So for me, stay classy in success and in failure and, uh, and you'll go a long way. Well, I love both of those. Stay classy in success and failure and uh, grab the seeds and the shovel. Um, there's been some comments about that particular comment, Mirren. Um, I love that because, you know, there is a, there's a whole stigma around closing or what we would consider failure. But um, for the emerging brands and the small brands here, you know, there's not one of us in this industry um, that hasn't seen failure. We've all seen it in some way or another, and it's nothing to um, run away from. In fact, I would encourage you to run toward it if it seems inevitable. And as Vincent said so well, to stay classy in it, it's a, um, it can bring you so much in the future. Um, I want to thank you both so much um, for being here with me today. What an amazing conversation. You're both so compelling. We could really have talked for the next two or three hours, truly. Um, some of the resources that Miran talked about, we'll try to pull some of those together and the letter from uh, Three Twins Ice Cream, which just recently went out of business, um, very sadly for most of us, because we, we've all known them and loved them um, in the industry for so long. But um, you know, I think it's, it's a great example of how to keep it classy and keep it um, hopeful and, and all of that. So we'll post that on the Beyond Brands LinkedIn page. So head over there. If you're not following Beyond Brands on LinkedIn, please go over there. We'll, we will post those resources there. This Thanks for joining us for Beyond Brands Build a Brand podcast. If you want more resources and information, go to beyondbrands.org. Follow us at Beyond Brands with an underscore on Instagram or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a review. It really helps. Please share this podcast with an entrepreneur who needs it. We all could use a little support. We look forward to having you next time. Stay well.